uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. And uh, it's found on page 492. Uh, page 492. Thank you, Johnny. <clears throat> We're now in a really significant uh, section of Nehemiah. Um, I believe this section is uh, of great relevance uh, to us. As individuals, as a church, um, it's a long section. Uh, remember, we're thinking about the theme of building the people together or rebuilding uh, the people back in Nehemiah's day and seeing um, the relevance of that uh, to our day. And uh, this um, actually begins here another stage now in chapter 8. And right the way through to the end of chapter 10. Uh, and so this morning uh, what we're going to do is uh, dip into key sections of Nehemiah 8 and 9. And then from those draw out one point. I did have a three point sermon for this morning. And I've decided to reduce it to one point. Because I feel that this is really significant for us as a church at this stage. So Nehemiah chapter 8, page 492. Let's read um, uh, just at the end of uh, chapter 7. By the way, we have another illustration here of how the um, chapters and verses are not inspired and are not always in the best place. And the NIV rightly uh, begins with what uh, has historically been placed at the end of chapter 7. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah and Maasiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people 
lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law. While the people were standing there, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Amen. Well, let's note first of all verse 13 of chapter 8. Um, the earlier section that we read was on day 1 of the 7th month. And uh, here now in verse uh, 13, uh, we come to day 2. And we'll read about that. And then we move through to chapter 9 where we read about day 24. And I want to encourage you over the next weeks to just immerse yourself in chapters 8 and 9 and 10 of this part of the word of God so that we are all familiar with it as we continue to look at it uh, in our um, study and our, our preaching of the word of God. So Nehemiah chapter uh, 8 verse 13. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered round Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. We're not going to note at this stage what they heard or what Nehemiah or what Ezra read, read. We want to move on now to this 24th day of the month when all the people come again. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shibana, Shebaniah, sorry, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenanai. He called with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hudiah, and Shebaniah, and Pethiah, said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name. And may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, and earth and all that is on it, 
the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. And then turning through to verse 36 and 37. In between we have what is a prayer, a prayer that reviews the history of God's dealings with his people. Uh, And uh, then we come to verse 36 and we're in the present again, the days of Nehemiah. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. Amen. We are in the second half of Nehemiah, uh, chapter 7 uh, to 13, where the focus has moved from rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem to rebuilding the people of God. As we saw last time, the uh, the broken wall was completed in 52 days. Rebuilding the people or building the people together will take much longer for they are in the words of chapter 9 verse 37 where we ended our reading they are in great distress this vital work of rebuilding the people begins as we saw last time in chapter 7 it begins with the appointment of godly leaders It begins with the identification of covenant members, people who live in Jerusalem, who are part of the covenant of grace, who know the God of Abraham as the God who saves in the Christ who will come. And then the third thing that was necessary, we saw last time from chapter 7, is the rebuilding of the people through the call to be generous givers. Now we come to chapters 8, 9 and 10, which are a whole. So how do you manage a big passage like that where there's one theme? Well, um, we have to break it down. Uh, And uh, we're going to spend several weeks in these chapters. But here now in chapters 8 and 9, the word that occurs again and again is the word law. It's in Hebrew the word Torah. You may have heard the word Torah used at various times within the church. Well, that's the word uh, that lies behind our English translation law throughout this chapter. And these chapters occurs nine times in chapter 8, verse 1, the book of the law of Moses. Verse 2, 
Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation. Verse 3. The ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Verse 7. The Levites helped the people to understand the law. Verse 8. They read distinctly from the book in the law of God. Verse 9. The end of it. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Verse 13. Um, the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe. In, oh, sorry, they, the father's houses were gathered to Ezra the scribe. In order to understand the words of the law. Verse 14. And they found written in the law. Verse 18. Day by day from the first day unto the last day. This is this week long feast. He read from the book of the law of God. And then chapter 9. It occurs once. This phrase law. In verse 3. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God. Bringing the law, reading the law, understanding the law, and obeying the law. That's what these chapters are about. The word law here, as used in this passage, refers to the first five books of Moses, or the first five books of our Bible, what we call the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's not referring here to the narrow law, the Ten Commandments, although that is part of those first five books. But the word law is used at other points in the Old Testament to refer to God's word generally. So, for example, the Psalms, oh, how I love your law. It is my delight all the day. Uh, but what means shall he, uh, a young man keep his way pure? If he is attentive to your word or to your law. So it's used there in a wider sense beyond the first five books as a description of the word of God. So we come to this passage this morning. And yes, we need to understand this passage in its setting of Nehemiah's day, where it was the first five books of the Bible. But also we need to realize that we are not living in that day. We're living under the new covenant. When we have the full law of God, the whole word of God, 66 books of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And so when we think of rebuilding the people in our context, 
It's not through the first five books of the Bible alone. It's through all 66 books of Scripture. In other words, rebuilding the people or building the people together through the Word. Through the Word. And the things which they did with the law, coming to hear it, standing uh, and having reverence of it, listening to it, um, understanding it, those things are also to be true of us. And so now here in Nehemiah, as soon as the wall is finished, there is an intentional ongoing reading and preaching of the word of God. It takes place, we're told, during the seventh month. And it's ongoing throughout the month. The chapter begins on the first day. And there is an audience, as we were saying, with the children of all ages. Verses 1 to 12. Then it continues on the second day. And the audience now is the heads of the families. Husbands and fathers. Verses 13 to 18. And then we're told of a further day, and there's been many other days in between, but we're told of the great final day when there's the assembling of people of all ages and both genders on the 25th day. And in chapter 9, verse 1, uh, we read, The children of Israel were assembled. Again, uh, verse 3, They stood in their place and read from the book of the law. So the word rebuilding the people through the word. The whole congregation. The husbands and fathers so that they understand their role. And then the whole church coming together in response. I notice that on the first day. The ministry lasts from morning to midday. That's about five hours. Imagine standing, not sitting, standing for five hours listening to the reading and the preaching of God's word. It's beyond our conception, isn't it? Sometimes people in churches complain if the sermon's 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Five hours. You'd be glad to know that's not where we're going this morning. So relax. On the 25th day, it lasts a quarter of the day. That's three hours. There's an appetite for God's word. And this appetite is like a growing teenager for food can't be satisfied sometimes we say to teenager is there no filling you well that's a bit what it was like there was no filling of this people with the word of God they can't get enough and that shows us this hunger for the word of God shows us that there's a spiritual change of great significance and depth 
that is getting under that is underway in the church in Nehemiah's day. Yes, they have heard the word of God read and preached over the years. They've been back in the land for 90 years. They've had the temple rebuilt for a huge part of that time. They've had the Levites in place. But there's something new happening now in Nehemiah's day. And this hunger for the word of God in this sustained way is a sign of revival in the church. It's always been identified as a sign of revival. And so we have one main point that we want now to take from this passage this morning. Where the people are being built together through the word. What effect did this ministry of Ezra and of Nehemiah and of those men that are mentioned, the Levites and others, what effect did it have? And what effect should the reading and the preaching of the word of God here have on our lives on the Lord's day? The first the fact that we want to note this morning, the only one to note this morning is that here we have word-produced worship. We see here that the effect of this ministry of the word is to produce worship. Worship. The worship of the people is noted twice. Chapter 8, verse 6. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. And uh, it's interesting that they had a platform. Um, it's obviously a big gathering. When do you need a pulpit? When you've got a big gathering and people can't see the preacher. So as long as you can see me in this building, we don't really have any great need for elevating me physically. In any way, the only purpose of doing it here was so that the people could see and hear. And so Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen and Amen, while lifting up their heads and worshipped the Lord. They worshipped the Lord. It seems that the very opening of scripture and Ezra taking the scroll the people had a sense already God is going to deal with us God is among us God is about to speak to us and we want to hear what he's going to say and already their hearts are going out to him. Is that us? It should be us. It 
It's what the Lord wants every time. This shouldn't be confined to times of revival. And then look at chapter 9, verse 3. The other uh, time when there's a reference to worship. They stood and read for a quarter of the day. And for a quarter of the day, they worshipped the Lord their God. Word produced worship. And that's what scripture is to do. It's to draw us out and direct our hearts and minds and our whole person to God. Because worship is about expressing his worth. It's about giving him his place, his honour, his glory, his authority over our lives. Worship is not ultimately or simply about words that we sing. It's about an attitude of heart. It's about a response of the heart. The reading and exposition of the word under Ezra draws forth worship. What does the word do here? Well, the word takes their eyes of themselves. That's very necessary, isn't it? Because by nature, man in sin... And even when we are made new in Christ, we can focus on self. We need our eyes taken off ourselves and off others. Sometimes that's our problem. Our eyes are too much on others. Either their outstanding example uh, and um, maturity, or sometimes it's on their faults and failures. The word takes us, our eyes, off ourselves. The word puts the problems of their daily lives in perspective. And there are a lot of problems in their daily lives they touch on them there in verses 36 and 37. There's harvests and their daily work and who's benefiting from it? The kings that rule them. And so life is tough and hard, but again their eyes are, are taken off themselves by the word. The word fixes their gaze upon their Lord. The word fills their thoughts with him. The word captivates their hearts for him. And ultimately the word loses their tongues to praise and magnify him for who he is and what he has done for them. Word produced worship. Last Monday, as you know from the announcements last week, the elders and ministers were meeting to pray in Balamonai. And we had a wonderful example of exactly this kind of thing. 
At the outset, the Reverend David Silversides, moderator of Synod, preached from Revelation chapter 5. God's throne in heaven and the Lamb in the midst of the throne and the scroll with the seven seals that nobody in heaven could open. And John was weeping over this as he saw this. And then he was told, weep not, for the Lamb is worthy to open the seals. And our thoughts were lifted to God's throne in heaven. Our thoughts were filled with the risen Christ, worthy to open the scroll with its seven seals, the Christ worthy to unfold the will of God for our lives as ministers, for our congregations, for the nations of our world today and until Christ comes again. And after David Silversides finished, there was a period of, which was entitled Adoration and Worship. And I have not witnessed the like of it. The outpouring of worship and praise to God, Father, Son, and Spirit, for His sovereign control and purpose for us. And for our church and or his church, it was word-produced worship. As a denomination, we are solidly committed to word-governed worship. And that is right. And I hope we never ever move from that we only do in worship what God reveals in scripture no band no music no modern day songs why because God has said in scripture I've given you 150 songs sing them in Christ, sing them with Christ, sing them through Christ, without adding anything in terms of music. We have word-governed worship, but do we have word-produced worship? The difference between word-governed worship and word-produced worship is that one comes from Scripture whilst the other flows from a heart that is captivated by God. And if we are honest this morning with God and with ourselves, we would have to admit this morning that there are churches in our town and our land and they do not have word-governed worship. But they have worship that is flowing from the word. 
Now, there's other places, and there's neither word governed, nor worship that flows from word. It's far more shaped by the world, but we're not going there. That's not where we're at this morning. It's not of relevance to us. But you see, if we're being faithful to Scripture, and if we have the mind of Christ in us, and the Spirit of God at work in us, It'll not be either a word-governed worship or a word-produced worship. It will be both. It will be both. A worship that is rooted in Scripture, not doing anything other than what Scripture commands, but then a worship that is produced from the word that flows out of our hearts. That's the point. That flows out of our hearts in response to the word as God deals with us in his word. And as I reflect upon my own life and on the life of our congregation, I ask myself, do we have word-produced worship? Are we characterized by this outpouring of our hearts to the Lord that delights in him for who he is in himself? Are we characterized by an outpouring of our hearts to the Lord that delights in him In what he has done for us in Christ? Are we characterized by this outpouring of our hearts that delights in his will, both for us, uh, or for us both um, as individuals, as families, and as a church, and then both in this life and the life to come? Are we characterized by a worship? That delights in his strength and grace in the midst of trials and temptations. Are we characterized by this outpouring of our hearts that delights in the advance of his kingdom in the earth? Word produced worship. Think about your own prayer life. Think about our our corporate prayer life. In our prayers, or at least let me speak for myself, there's a lot of asking. We're like children at Christmas with a long list of the things we want God to give us and do for us. And in our prayers there is some thanksgiving. Like the child, when you give them your child, when you give them their birthday present. And they say a thank you. And then they go on. And get absorbed with it. In their own situation. Is that not often how we treat God? In terms of thanksgiving? Yes, there's a cursory 
we, we must, we should give thanks. And, and then we get on to the real thing, which is, here's the things we need, Lord. And then, in our prayers, is there much more than a sprinkling of confession? A bit like the vermicelli finish on a cake. You put a wee bit of sprinkle on the top. And we sprinkle a little bit of repentance and confession or, or, um, in, our, in our prayers. There's a pinch like putting salt in food, a pinch of confession of sin, both personal and corporate. Word produced worship. It causes us to overflow in our hearts to God. Who he is. Causes us to confess our sin. Yes, it will cause us to ask. And we will ask big things of God. And we will expect big things of God. But they will take on a kingdom perspective. And they will be overflowing with thanksgiving to God for all his goodness and grace to us. Like Israel in Nehemiah's day, I think as a church, as a domination, as a congregation, we need word-produced change. So that we don't go through the motions of worship. We sing. We sit. We read. We pray. We need word produced change. That we have hearts that love God. Hearts that delight in him. Hearts that serve him. Hearts that honor him. Hearts that are overflowing with gratitude to him for who he is. In other words, we need to become like Jesus. Because that was how the 30 years, or 33 years of his earthly life were spent. In word produced Every morning listening to his father, the scriptures of the Old Testament, going to the synagogue on the Jewish Sabbath, gathering for the feasts and the festivals of the old covenant church, but all the time his heart, his human heart, his sinless heart, yes, but still his heart. drawn out in love for his father delight in his father commitment to the father's will all that that would cost for him we need to become like Jesus whose delight was in his father and you see the only way we can become like Jesus is if he makes us like himself.
And so we need to come afresh to him. Perhaps for some of you it's coming the first time. And it's recognizing he is the only way to heaven. He's the only savior from sin. He is the Lord of heaven and of earth. He's over my life today. And I have not recognized that to this point. And I now need to do that in repentance and faith. And for others of us, it maybe involves that we need to rediscover Jesus. And his grace and his mercy so that we are living in the fullness and the freedom of his forgiveness. Living like him. Living for him. How do we build the church? How do we rebuild broken lives, ours and others? <coughs> Through the reading and the preaching of the word. And that word then producing worship. In our hearts and from our hearts through our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty and eternal God, we bless you for the great and glorious God that you are. The God of abundant grace. The God who is rich in mercy. The God who overflows in love. Towards us. Who are sinners. By birth. And by deed. And who stand in need. Of your grace and mercy in Christ. And so we come to you this morning. And we pray that you would forgive us. That our eyes have been upon ourselves. That our eyes have been upon one another. That our eyes have been upon the challenges and the experiences of daily life. And so our vision has become distorted and our worship has become mundane and secondary. Lord, forgive us. You're the God who made us. You're the God who sustains us. You're the God who provides for us. You're the God who gives us the bread of life. There's no other God apart from you. And yet we neglect you. And we forget about you. Lord, forgive us. Have mercy upon us. Lord, work in our hearts. Fill them with your grace. 
with your Holy Spirit so that we would have worship of you that is, yes, governed by Scripture and doesn't do anything that's not commanded in Scripture but also worship that flows from our hearts in response to Scripture as it is read and preached in our hearing. Have mercy upon us, Lord God. Make us like Jesus, the man without sin, our Savior, and our great example. In Jesus' name, amen.